OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potman, and let's welcome our guest today from Singapore, Tobias. Did I say that right? I was going to make sure I didn't want to mess that up, but <laughs> Tobias. No, I just said right. You sound like a German. <laughs> well, Tobias, uh, pleasure having you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Absolutely, Jeffrey. Thanks so much uh, for having me in the first place, uh, and excited about the questions you're going awesome. to ask me. Well, there's lots of good ones, I hope, um, but we're going to dive right into it so we can learn lots about you and what you guys are up to today. So, uh, so Tobias, maybe I know you're in Singapore today, which is fantastic. Nice little country. I love it there. Um, let's dive into it. What's, uh, if you could give us a little bit more about your background, kind of where you've come from, where you're at today, where you're going, and then one thing about you that nobody would know. Yeah, that's a good question. I like the second one. Uh, start with a, with a bit of a background and then we dive into the, the secret question. Um, so I'm originally not from Singapore, I'm from Germany actually. Uh, it's a tiny place, uh, close to Munich actually, it's an hour drive in the south, close to Austria. It's called Oberammergau, it's quite a mouthful. Um, so I grew up there obviously, um, went to school in Germany, did a law degree in, in Germany as well. And, and then kind of like went into the investment banking side of things across uh, Europe. I uh, was a little bit in consulting across Europe as well, but mostly in Austria and Germany, um, basically in, a, in the recovery service uh, um, where we brought businesses back to profitability. And then uh, moved to Dubai. I was in, I was in the, uh, the tech space, sort of an SME company. We, we work with uh, Iran, Iraq, a bunch of emerging markets in the space, helped them with their mobile phone penetration and you know, gave people access to, to games, music and all this kind of stuff. Um, then moved to China, lived there for about two years, um, learned fluent Chinese and also worked with a startup there. Um, so I joined super early. We, we raised a bit of capital and then went through SOSV, which is a bigger US accelerator. Um, but they have like, you know, a bunch of different offices. And then I actually ended up joining SOSV. So I worked with the investment team for a bit. We looked at India, a bit of Korea, music tech, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, predominantly, just because, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, and Vietnam is, is obviously very, very booming markets. And then, um, you know, went, went back to school in, in Singapore. I did a postgraduate degree there as well at NUS and in China. Um, and then joined Blockchain Founders Fund uh, as sort of the third guy there together with Ali Mansour. And uh, since, yeah, since two years, we've, we've been building this, this uh, VC. I've invested in about uh, 55 plus companies now across, two, uh, you know, in the last two and a half years, had a crypto unicorn in a gaming space called Splinterlands, a bunch of other really good successes in, in those two years. And in February this year, we actually decided, okay, let's let's raise a proper fund. Um, and so now currently we're raising a 75 million fund, we're about 45 million committed right now. And uh, I'm going to have the first capital call in about two weeks and then starting deploying the, the, the money into interesting blockchain and emerging tech startups, basically from uh, November on, mid of November. And, and yeah, going to do 200 investments over the next three and a half years and hopefully find some some other interesting companies. Pretty sure I find some interesting companies. <laughs> and then uh, the next question you asked is like something nobody knows. It's actually interesting, which kind of connects me back to where I actually started off and came from, which is Obama go, right? So every 10 years, uh, we have what we call um, a passion play, right? So... It's something where everybody, I mean, that's almost a whole village comes together every 10 years and plays a theater act, right? It takes five hours. We played a hundred times and you're not allowed to cut your hair for almost two years because it needs to be realistic, right? So you have to picture me with probably hair like this and in a white angel costume walking around, walking across the stages and, you know, uh, talking to the people what God has been told uh, <laughs> in the past. So, uh that, that's something very specific uh, from our hometown. It's happening every 10 years. It's actually happening 20, uh, to 2020 as well. Um, and and also, uh, to 2022, actually, because of COVID, it got shifted for two years. Um, I'm not going to be participating this time, but I have done a couple of times in the past. And uh, if you go on YouTube, you're probably going to find me. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, now I have to ask another question about this. So who... Who coordinates this and how big is the city and how many people participating in this no cut your hair for two years? 
Yeah, that's actually, it's quite big, honestly. So we've done this since 400 years. Wow. Um, so every 10 years, except I think World War One or World War Two or something, there was a little bit of gap. This has been happening every 10 years, right? And there's one person in the city called uh, Christian. He's like kind of, uh, you know, organizing it, putting it all together, recruiting the people. And it's a huge thing, right? I mean, we are 4,000 people, 4,500 people in this village. And I think probably like 3,500 people actually act, right? So every time we act, there's 5,000 people watching it. We acted a uh, hundred times. So it's half a million people just coming to this tiny village over the course of, I think like three months or so. Like we, we, like it's happening five or six days a week and it takes like six hours, right? A two hour break in between. So it's a whole day thing. And um, people come from all over the world. Like it's gotten, it's gotten quite, quite a bit of attention. Uh, so we have a lot of Asian tourists, a lot of from the US. Um, so basically from everywhere. And um, it's, it's like, honestly, it's, it's a, it's the big, Biggest thing every 10 years for this little village, you can imagine. Right? Not, not, nothing else is happening there much um, except a bunch of tourists, but it's a nice and cute little town. Oh, that's incredible. And and I think just the being part of that atmosphere and having to coordinate and put all this together sounds pretty cool. Probably not the best profession to go into if you're a hairdresser or uh, working in a salon. You might uh, lose <laughs> out some dollars for a couple of years, but I, I guess there's always ways to trim that hair and keep yourself looking polished. But uh, exactly. so pretty cool. I think that's a lot of people that uh, come together. So real communal based. I grew up in a small town uh, of 6,000 people. So when you say a village, I'm thinking like 150 people, but 4,000 people <laughs> in a village is, uh, sounds like a pretty big, small town, but either way, I'm, maybe I'll say I came from a village too. And then, uh, I can, uh, share my story of a small town growing up, but that's, uh, I love how people correlate the two differences, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I lived in China, I lived in Shanghai with 25 million people. That is, uh, they don't even know what 4,000 people looks like. You know, like that's oh, a, agreed. a city or a village in the that's first one place. Per, that's two carts <laughs> on the subway track. So, yeah, exactly. that's, uh, that's, that's my neighborhood that's building. That's pretty village. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I come, I can see that. I can vision that. So I'm from a village too then. So I'm going with it. Um, <laughs> but that's much. pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. So um, we'll take a step back though and, and kind of dive a little bit more into what I think is uh, pretty prevalent to uh, any VC or anybody that's investing in early stage companies. And that's that you worked in a startup and you've been through the ringer of what it takes to be in a startup. Um, are there any kind of real lessons that kind of stood out for you when you were working in a startup, what it what it felt like, what it was like for a founding team to, to kind of build up their product, raise funds? Any couple points, maybe uh, three or four points that really stood out um, about what it takes to be a startup? Yeah, I mean, so I work with two startups, actually. So one in Cambodia and, and one in China. And uh, first of all, it's a very different environment to be in. The startup uh, was more in the tech space, and the other one I uh, worked with um, uh, was in the fintech space. Um, so so I think a couple of interesting points to mention here is obviously, first of all, when you start really, really early on, it's um, you're going to end up doing everything, right? I need to be completely okay with it. That's also the people you want to recruit for. Right. If you hire a guy in a BD role at the beginning and that's sort of what he's focused on, I think it's going to be challenging, right? Because he's going to end up doing recruiting, he's going to end up doing reporting, he's going to end up doing finance, he's going to end up doing anything, right? Because there are three people in that startup. And uh, you need to be flexible and, and agile enough to to take on literally every task which comes across your your job, your board, right? Or your desk, essentially. Um, so from a hiring perspective, that's interesting. A second thing is well, we have done a couple of mistakes before is um hiring people with the wrong vision, right? There's a couple of people who are not really 100% aligned with what the end goal is, right? And then and then you see that pretty fast in terms of compensation, right? They, they care more about the cash benefit rather than the stock option, all these kind of things, which then should already be eye-opening to some extent. Um, so recruiting the first people in terms of skill set, but also in terms of vision is, is one of the biggest things which I've learned. Um, and a second thing is, is probably in, in these emerging markets quite interesting is from a geopolitical perspective, right? So doing business is of course not easy in the first place, but doing it in a country like Cambodia, for example, where everything is uh, even from an infrastructure government perspective, much more emerging than it is somewhere else, brings additional challenges. You, and, and these are challenges you probably um, like would never imagine, right? If you, if you do business in, in, in the US probably, or even in Germany where I come from, 
um, yeah, it's still difficult to have a startup because operational challenge and execution perspectives, but like um, things like corruption, right? And things like other issues, you probably know that they're existing, but are not very present to you, um, become a very different scale in these markets. And they have a different uh, additional hinderness to growth, right? An additional challenge to growth. Um, and and that was that was actually the first time I really realized that. Right. And I had no idea before what perspective and scale this could take on. So th these are a couple of interesting things, which uh, I think is especially relevant in these markets. And I mean, China is obviously getting better, but Cambodia is still early stage. And then there's a still a bit of a wild west in a sense of what you can do and can't do. Um, and you see that quite, a, quite extensive in, in terms of regulations, in terms of uh, laws, which have been made up and also, you know, in terms of how the whole system works right it's not as straightforward as a process it's more like who do you know who you don't know and how do you get to those people uh, and then you can do a lot of other things as well those are those are three great points and two of them uh, i'm going to hit on because i i think that they're really relevant to uh kind of the conversation on what what learnings that you've brought into the environment which i think are huge um the many hats you're right small team you're going to wear a lot of different hats to build your company um, and you're kind of shift and grow as your business grows. So you're going to bring new people in. You're going to slowly try to focus as you grow your business and commercialize okay. it up. So those yeah. things will happen. Um, one of the things when you talked about the vision and having people that were part of the same vision uh, to build the business and uh, same part of the same strategy, maybe share a little bit more about how, how you were able to determine when people aren't on the same page when people aren't really understanding where you're trying to go and what measures you can take to either align people on that vision or move them out of the business because they're only going to be bringing the business down. What are the red flags that you see around that? I, I think this is highly important for startups because I, I would imagine that a lot of them are just building and sometimes they're not paying attention to all the different resources on the team and not really maybe getting the feedback of negativity or uh, going in a different direction or people's personalities getting in the way. What kind of things stand out or red flags do you notice um, that startups can utilize to help them better see this and then pivot and change as they need? Yeah, I think you have to sort of break this down and maybe maybe like two or three areas, right? Obviously, the first thing is probably like from a hiring perspective and then from an execution perspective and then probably like, moving forward right these are like the three areas in a cluster so let's pick the first one from a hiring perspective i think when you're talking especially early stage right when you're hiring your second or third fourth fifth sixth guy or was a girl um you want to make sure that when they when you talk to them they know about the space right they kind of give you ideas and not just like ask i mean the thing is for me it's important that because if i hire the fourth fifth guy right they're not going to be executing what i tell them right? Or what anyone else is going to tell them. I need someone who kind of builds this company with me and brings in own ideas and has an own, has an assimilar, maybe a, maybe even a slightly different, different vision, right? But then you kind of align and pivot together and with all the conversations you're going to have and with customer feedback and investor feedback, you kind of get, get your way around, right? So when, when you interview someone who is uh, in, in, taking an important position early in a company, you essentially want to be challenged by that person, right? And you don't want to, you want to ask him where this company is essentially going and how he sees the market evolving. And like, he brings all these interesting components to a conversation and not just like, yeah, I, I'm, I, if you tell me this, I'm going to do that, right? I mean, that's like the wrong mindset of someone who will take an important decision in an early stage company. And then the second is also, even from a compensation perspective, right? If someone really believes in what you're doing and thinks this is going to be the next unicorn, they're probably going to be more interested in actually getting part of the equity or getting part of the uh, stock options or things like this, because that's what, you know, really ties their performance to the company's performance, right? If someone is only interested in, in getting a cash component or, you know, making a short-term thing, I think it's, it already shows that the vision is probably a little bit different, right? Because if you are going to be working with the next Facebook and you know the next Facebook is going to win, then you don't care about six, seven, $8,000 cash, right? You want to have the, the shares, obviously, right? And that, that was what's going to bring the, the whole value in, but that's also what aligns the, the incentives again. Now, if you're already in, um, in sort of working with founders and, and building with them, I think it, it's, it's super important that um, people are coachable, right? Um, especially early where, where like 
company probably going to look 100% different um, throughout the first years, right? In terms of vision, in terms of how we build things, in terms of even business models change sometimes completely, right? After you talk to first customers and get your insights and, and, and even talk to investors and get feedback. So if someone is uh, very, very much aligned in what they want to do, and there's no way of, uh, you know, having a flexibility in terms of conversations, or if someone is not really coachable and thinks they're always right, um, it might be good for like an investment banking position, right? Where there is not really wrong or right in a sense, but since this is going to change so tremendously and has so tremendously impact on what you're going to do, um, it is also, you know, challenging to to work with these people. And then a second part what I, what I think is pretty interesting um, is another perspective of work ethics, right? It's not a nine to five job. Um, and and there will be ad hoc stuff and, and you know, raising a startup is kind of like raising a child in a way, right? It needs constant attention and um, you need to constantly work together and like, you know, figure out constantly going to have challenges, which seem impossible to overcome, but then you're probably going to find a way to overcome. So having someone with um, that sort of mindset, right? That this is something he's going to devote his time to, and you know, if you want to make it big, it is, is extremely important, right? If someone comes in like, okay, I'm going to work hard nine to five, that's probably also going to be a challenging early, early on, right? I mean, later, yes, fair enough. There are going to be different positions. But this is all like where I see red flags. Um, but again, right, it also depends on the startup founder itself, right? If you don't want to be the next unicorn, if you just want to build an interesting, sustainable business, then it's again, it's up for you to decide where your vision is and then build uh, surround yourself with people who are potentially better or even like, you know, probably better than you because you you'll never be the smartest person in the room, right? Not even the person, smartest person in your startup. Um, and then, you know, align them with the vision you're, want to just want to see this going right if you want to see this next unicorn and you have people with a similar vision if you want to see this the next small medium-sized business and just you know make a decent salary out of it and never sell it then you need to have similar people with a similar vision right and then that's sort of what i mean with that choosing first but if you chose sometimes this could even be wrong and then figuring out okay what to do with this person is you know sometimes it's hard to let the person go but you should also not be intimidated by being challenged as a founder Right, so someone just someone that challenges you. You as a founder also need to be um, coachable and and need to be, um, you know, sometimes take take it in your pocket. Right, if, if someone else has a better idea, then so be it. Right, not not just because you're the founder or the CEO that everything is, you're gonna say is gonna be perfect. Right, that's also important to know, and that that's the kind of people I would like to have around me when I um, do something. Right. Well, there's a lot there, so we'll, I'll kind of unpack some of them. But what I think is kind of the key to your hiring process and to make sure that they're aligning to your vision is that you're hiring leaders. You're hiring people that maybe they're not a hundred percent full leader today, but they're aspiring to become a leader. So they're going to push back against the founders. They're going to push back and challenge uh, all of the people in the business to ensure that it's going in the right direction. It's growing, it's building it's scaling, whatever, as you mentioned, whichever version you take of your business, if you want to uh, be a unicorn or you want to just be a, um, a happy family office. So I guess there's different stages, but you're really trying to find some strong leadership. And I think to unpack the other piece of it was that not only are you finding leaders, but you're finding people that are self-directed, that they can mm-hmm. take the ball and run with it. So it's not you having to dictate what everybody needs to do, because like you said, at version person four or five, you know, it's kind of getting out of the, the realm of you managing everybody, micromanaging. So you got to have leaders that are really tackling the market, exactly. pushing the business forward. And you're kind of aligning to that vision now, not aligning to uh, someone telling you what to do. Yeah. And then tying in the coachable aspect of it, which is uh, it kind of seems like the founder has to be more malleable as well and, and um, kind of drop pride and, and look at their team as, instruments that are going to help them scale and grow and they need to be able to take that input feedback uh coaching anything that's going to help them improve at the same time so not only are they being the leader and and moving the business forward but they're also being malleable to adjust to the personalities and everybody on the team so that that strategy or the vision continues to keep aligning as they move forward yeah i think that's a a really good summary and that's another point I wanted to bring across. Yeah, I, I, that's and especially the last point is is really really important, right? Because we have tried to work with a couple of founders before, or even like you know seeing them on a call and things like this. When everything the founder says is 
is the right thing, right? Just because this person has been in the industry for like 10 years and figured out this problem and built the business early on. And that might all be true and it's highly respected, right? I mean, if you've done this, like you have my full respect, it's a, it's a very, very difficult journey, but it's still, um, you know, sometimes you're so concentrated and so tunneled in what you're doing that any outside's perspective is, is also super helpful. Right, because it can bring out this different light, this different perspective. What you need as a founder, because you're so it's so obvious for you everything you do, right? Because that's what that, that's where you live in, that's where you work in. Uh, but every other who comes in as a different perspective um, is similar to like how a customer would look at it, right? If you think about it, right? they don't have all this previous knowledge. They just want to have something easy, simple, which works. And then sometimes you get stuck in like. It looks, it looks obviously very, very simple to you, but sometimes it is not, right? And then outside perspective, and you should have the courage to accept if, if something is actually better or more interesting or a good advice, right? No matter how good or bad or rich or whatever you are. No, that's a, that's a great point. And, and I think a lot of founders need to kind of take that step back at some point and realize that they're building a business, they're building a lot of personalities, and there's a lot of people that are, hungry, interested, and want to grow and support the founder, no matter if they're the smartest person in the business or um, not the smartest, but they're at least driven to make something successful. People want to get part of a vision. They want to be part of something that has to go somewhere. Um, It's tough to find people that just like to hang out and work and not go anywhere. So uh, I I guess that's um, a real big component to what you're saying is that you really do have to have that strong vision so that everybody can align and you all have those same successes and you're doing them as a team. Yeah. That's the same thing for advisors, mentors, anything you bring on, they should all be aligned to that vision. So everybody is sort of pulling on the same, you know, the same, same string essentially to get to that goal where you want to end up going and what would you think is best for the business, but then obviously getting advice and getting input along the way. I love it. And you mentioned this before, but getting coaching and getting advisors and help, I think that makes a big difference in, in any business project or anything that you're going to do. Um, it certainly helps uh, uh, help you work your way through a lot of those issues. And, and I think the, the one that I'm excited to talk about is the uh, more excited, I guess, is the geopolitical side uh, that you mentioned. And, um, you know, we talked to a lot of uh, investors around the world. And what I love about what you brought up is that there is this underlying um, elephant in the room, which is every country operates differently. And you probably don't learn a lot of these things until you're in the thick of it. And then kind of, like you said, you had to learn that there's different things that can go on in government. um, And some of it might be greasing the wheels of, of justice or whatever that might be. And startups probably learn the hard way when they get in, how they have to operate, how they have to grab attention of, uh, officials or businesses, um, and everybody has a different way of how they get compensated and how they operate and work inside of that business space. So maybe you can open up this a little bit more around the types of things that you've seen. And I wouldn't say it's just specific to Asia. I'm sure that there's a lot of countries in the world that startups have to work through these types of measures. Um, but what I'm interested in about it is that it's not to call it out and say, hey, this country, you got to pay off this guy in order to get this to work. It's more of understanding what types of things can startups face and then what's their way to work around them. And I have a feeling that a lot of this goes back to the coaching and the advisors that come in, that they're the ones that have been living through this like the 30 years, as you mentioned, and they're going to bring enough experience to help you tackle through some of these big problems. Yeah, no, no, I think it's a very good start, what you mentioned. Um, so first of all, first of all, what can go wrong, right? Or what, what, could, what could end up being in a challenge? And, and you know, I'm, I'm talking more from the countries I have experience in as of now, but I'm pretty sure, as you said, it's probably, uh, you know, everywhere uh, could, could run some, some challenges like this. But, you know, as when you're in a relatively stable market, I would say like Singapore, you, you worry more about like customer acquisition, you know, when to get funding, like the, the standard problem uh, a startup essentially faces. Um, and you don't really worry about like, will I ever get a bank account, right? Or will I ever get a license, right? Or will I ever, um, you know, be invited to some certain events where I need to be part of, right? And, and the thing is, in like in, especially in emerging markets, if you are, are able to pull off a, an interesting business, 
the market is very, very small and it's something very, very special, right? So if you raise a big amount of funding, the whole country will know, right? And you will be, you will just be on people's radar, right? If you like it or not, right? because there is simply not um, as, as many of these breakouts as you would might have in other countries, right? So for example, we worked at a company and we raised the, one of the, actually, I think it was the biggest um, seed round in the whole country ever, right? Um, so if you do this, obviously, um, people know you, right? <laughs> and Everybody wants to know you if they don't know you. Everybody yet, wants sure. to know you. Exactly, right? So it's, it's obviously, a, on the one side, it's a very good thing because hiring talent and you know, getting media attention is, is very simple. And it also helps you, of course, pushing the name out cross-border because in some countries, even though they're emerging, the actual market you can capture is probably smaller or is developing currently, right? So it's always important especially markets like Laos, Cambodia, or even smaller markets in Africa or South America. Um, like the, the strategy will always be capturing what you can in your market, especially the biggest cities. And, and then, you know, the outskirts are, or the, the, the provinces you will probably not, not reach, right? Because the infrastructure is very, very different. So you have to go cross borders to the next biggest cities. And in Asia, for example, it's interesting because it's very homogeneous, right? So even in Cambodia and Phnom Penh, which is um, still a bit of an early stage country in general. People use, um, you know, people go to Starbucks and spend five dollars on a coffee, right? Although the GDP per capita is obviously a very different story than somewhere else in the world. They all have TikTok, right? They even invest in cryptocurrency, right? So it's it's very simple and and very similar. But um, then you move out of the Phnom Penh place, so like out of the capital, then the whole landscape looks very very different, right? So that's why you either focus on one market and like build something which everybody can use, which is then more of an infrastructure perspective, um, or you build more of something sophisticated and layered on top and then obviously move out and, and capture similar markets. And that's the next problem, right? So once you get all this attention and um, relationships are typically in the countries I've been working on very, very important, right? So if you are, have a challenge with one relationship, even though that might be before you've ever done anything in the business world, now you have the attention. So now this person has probably a bit of power. Right. So um, that 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 then also determines of who you speak to, of who you get invited to. And that is a big thing. Right. So and, and you know, building these long term important relationships is becoming a very different level. And it's not just of like connecting with someone on LinkedIn and having a chat with them. That's like it goes way, way deeper. Right. It goes like supporting what they're doing, you know, like going to all their galas, like, you know, uh, getting engaged with them. Right. It's building a, a literally long term relationship. So this whole networking becomes a very different, very, very different meaning in that space. Right. So I've always been trying to do a lot of networking and things. But when I reached this country, I knew, OK, that's a whole different level. And if you're not used to this as a founder, that's going to tremendously put a barrier in front of everything you're going to do. Right. Because you have to approach it as the country does it. Right. And not as you as a founder would do it. And then it comes basically to your point is how do you understand that and how do you reach this? Right. And it's typically not by yourself reading a book about it. Right. That's probably not going to help you a lot. Um, so what you need is local people or even people who have been in the market for a very, very long time who understand how business is being done there. Right. And that's, and these people you want to get involved, these people want to talk to, because even if you potentially have closed the door, um, they might be able to open it. But not yourself, right? If you if you fuck up this relationship, sorry, my language, like you're you're out, right? This is done. Um, so you need someone else opening the door for you again, right? There's no way of knocking again to the door and saying, "I'm sorry, that was a bit rough," or I don't know, um, yeah, this dispute down the road, um, this door is closed from your own personal perspective. Um, so I think the biggest takeaway is, um, you know, you have to expect the challenge literally everywhere even from, from things you would expect um, that everything runs smoothly, right? Opening a bank account in the US is probably a straightforward process, right? No one is gonna come and say, oh, yeah, you're not gonna open a bank account, right? <laughs> uh, it's probably not gonna happen, right? But like these things can happen. And, and it's a very important decision where you go into market, right? Because now we see a lot of companies coming over and oh, I wanna do, I wanna build a market, a startup in, in Indonesia because the market is big, right? Fair enough, that's true. That's also a lot of people tried in China and completely failed right? because the whole market is so different. Um, so you as a not a local with no local connections, with um, no partnerships in the market, with uh, no legal standing, with always having them challenging, setting up entities, setting up bank accounts, getting licenses just because you're not 
you know, Cambodian or Indonesian, and there are some certain restrictions of how you can operate, it will be very challenging for doing business there, right? So that's why you want to surround yourself with local people who understand the system, who have good connections, and then advisory boards, um, but also hires, right? Ground hires. You cannot build a business in Cambodia with only foreigners. It's also not going to happen. Right? There's a bunch of these challenges, which again come around hiring, come around from an uh, operations perspective, but also then of like adjusting to it as fast as possible and not adjusting by reading a book, but actually getting real hands-on advice of how this would potentially going to play out if you do X, Y, Z, right? And, and um, yeah, it gives them gives the whole founding experience a, a whole nother level. It adds a bit of salt, adds a bit of pepper, makes it a bit more spicy, um, and uh, but also makes it more interesting, right? I mean, as, as long as you can sustain and, and you build a long-term relationship that solves the problem, you can also succeed in these markets. It's just going to take a little bit more time probably, and it's going to be a little bit more challenging. I love that because it, when I started a company in the Philippines 15 years ago, uh, there was a lot of interesting challenges, but it wouldn't have started if I didn't have um, Filipino partners. I wouldn't have occurred if I didn't understand the culture. And you kind of take it for granted because you're just moving quickly. You're not really paying attention to all the little elements that you just talked about, but how vitally important they are and what it really comes down to is the relationships that you build and how yeah. strong are those relationships? Because when things get tough, are they stepping in to help you? Are they helping direct you around those tough spots because they're locals, they understand how the government works, they understand how businesses are working on the ground so they can actually steer you through. And a lot of them came from just uh, setting up bank accounts or understanding how you could actually register a company as a foreigner in a foreign country. And a lot of those stipulations came up and they don't want to work with you or the banks are saying, well, we're not sure we can do this because you're a foreigner. So it, it yeah. is quite fascinating, the things that you learn. And I think to your point, the biggest thing that comes out of all of this, that when you are starting a company in another country is that you figure out how to be a, a pretty damn good networker and mm -hmm. uh, go deep as you can on the relationships, because those are the Absolutely. ones that are going to help you uh, survive. And then if you do that, right, I mean, all these markets, they, they truly offer a tremendous potential of doing business there, right? So it's just a way of like approaching it correctly. And as you said, building these long lasting and deep ties to the cultural, the business and the political side, and then um, have the right people to support you when some things get challenging. And now that you've spent the last few years traveling around and building up in, in Asia and other countries as well, but specifically in Asia, uh, now you've launched into your, your own fund over the last two years, taking all these great learnings that you have and all these deep relationships that you've created. How much easier was it for you to kind of kick off and build up this venture firm uh, because of all the types of relationships that you made that people wanted to support you? So you ended up becoming a lot a lot easier than just dropping in and saying, hey, I'm creating a venture firm. Everybody line up. Let's get going. Um did it work a lot easier for you in that fashion because you understood the culture, you understood how to integrate easier. So it was a little more um, acceptable for you to kind of dive in here and start working with all these different broad companies and investors. I mean, it, it definitely, it definitely helped, helped a lot. Right. I mean, all these experiences tying together, especially if, um, because like, I think it's important to have that, that background of being an operator, but also being an investor. Right. So being having to work before in like an investment firm, but then also being on the ground and like see what the struggles actually are and like what the founders go through, first of all, gives you a lot of credibility as an investor, or even or, or let's say a little bit more credibility. And then but also for yourself, when you're doing the due diligence and you see certain problems arising, you kind of get an idea of how easy or how difficult it how you know to solve them essentially. So with blockchain farmers fund, I mean Ali and Mansoor. Um, they, they, I mean, they, they set it up very, very initially and they did a, a fantastic job, right? So of course I came in super early and then we, we built this together to, to an extent, but um, they, are, they are also in a similar space, right? They, they lived in various different countries, similar to me. We met actually in China, uh, so that's how the whole relationship started. And, and um, they've been an operator and an investor before as well, right? So that is kind of like we have a similar background in a sense, um, um, which kind of, and everybody is very sort of oriented of 
reaching that vision, right? Of supporting these emerging tech companies across also emerging markets and like just really look for the deeper problem and, and not just like um, funding random businesses, right? We always want to look, okay, what actually impact do you have towards a society or towards uh, whatever industry you're in? Um, so I love, I love their vision in the very beginning, right? So that's why, that's why I joined so early and that's why I'm staying with them today. And it's a fantastic journey. Um, but, uh, it, it definitely, it definitely helped. I mean, it was still, we applied for the license in Singapore. It was still a long process. It took us five months or something to get the license. We got a tremendous support from, from MAS in Singapore, from the government, um, because you're doing something which is also not not super straightforward, right? Because still going to blockchain space, you're still going to emerging tech space, where it's uh, um, you know something maybe a little bit more, um, you know, not risky, but like it's still a bit more emerging in a sense, right? Um, so I think the way that um, the team is split up, I think, uh, makes makes us um, just work together super well, right? So we have someone who is like very much on the growth side of things, right? So how do you scale stuff then we have someone who's a super good networker and someone who's really good fundraising um and then we work quite hands-on with the companies and help them right but we always had we also had our learnings from the past and uh when we i think what is really really important to us and sort of helps us quite now a bit is since we and all of us were working a startup before and i was literally every time i was working with a startup advice a startup or even you know applied for a startup at some point in time the only question I have is like, what problem are you solving? Right. So what, why, why are you allowed to be in this market? Right. That's sort of the, the idea. And that was our fun thesis, right? So we want to solve problems with actual use cases who've proven product to market fit, right? Everything else is then supportive, right? Obviously you want to have interesting founders and stuff like this. Um, but that that is that is helping me tremendously to make interesting decisions and going through these deep processes and being on call with founders and also setting up the own fund, right? Because that's kind of like your own venture as well, in the sense of going through these processes, um, you know, building the fund, getting documents out, and and all this kind of stuff. So, I think a it's it's a, it's a, it's our background. Second, it's the team, and and third is like that we all sort of believe in the same vision and move to move this forward basically twenty four seven. Right. And that, that really helped. And, and the background definitely helped. I love it. And you, you mentioned that being part of a startup really makes a big difference and it allows you to really engage with the startups better because you can relate easier knowing both of you have gone through the thick and thin of things. And um, I, I like the line that you said, which was, what problem are you solving and why are you allowed to be in this space? And, and I like that because it's very direct. And it proves a point that you can't succeed without having a problem to solve. And then you got to prove why you belong in this space. Because um, I think from any investor standpoint, if you can't answer that question, then you're not really investable. So prove to me why, or prove to us or yourself, why you actually should be selling in here because you're so early. I'm not seeing the wins. Show me and prove to me why this works. So I love that line. That's uh, bang on. Um, and, and again, of course, the team, the vision, all of those things really structure to help you support uh, the vision of where you guys are going in this fund. Um, yeah. Can you uh, just quickly chat to a couple of things around um, the types of companies that you look to invest in and where do you see as being uh, maybe the next emerging markets or the next um, big innovation that you think is going to come over the next uh, two to five years? Yeah, Absolutely. So with the new fund, um, we we kind of continuing something which we have already been doing, um, which which proven which we proven to be working. So we invest in early stage companies, right? It's pre seed to pre Series A. So typically we go in, you know, the most successful investments we've done probably between a three and ten million valuation. Um, we focus on anything sub twenty million valuation. They're super early. Um, anything asset light. Um, so we don't do anything hardware related. Uh, we are location and industry agnostic, except like, you know, this hardcore biotech or medtech solution where you need a lot of domain expertise. We typically stay a bit away from that. Um, and with a new fund, we are going to raise, um, we're in the process of finishing the raise of $75 million, right? So we're going to deploy this in, in about 200 companies over the next three and a half years. So it's early, it's, it's small checks, right? It's 200K 
on a first or up to 200k on a first check size and then we when I work with the companies quite hands-on, like I mentioned, you have typically weekly calls with them and really help them solve their problems. Um, and then once we get to know the company and we kind of know how the company is standing, then we can do larger checks from 500K to 5 million, right? To really help them scale um, at further rounds down the road. And we, we're, not a, we're not any, I mean, although we focus a bit on, on actually quite a bit on blockchain, it's not that we are a token fund, right? So we always want to go on equity. And that's why, again, it's so important for us. So it's the problem and the product market fit, right? Because we are long-term investors. We have an eight-year, essentially, fund life. Um, and that's how we see it, right? We want to have someone who is similar aligned, who is there for the long-term, wants to build sustainable businesses, and wants to have our capital and also support to help them scale, right? And... And that's been working quite well. If you look at Splinterlands, one of the biggest successes when we backed them, probably like a 4 million valuation is currently now raising in the billions. Um, uh, one of the biggest blockchain games in the space right now, growing very, very fast. Um, we had probably more than 100 calls with them over the last two years. right? And like literally every week, Ali, uh, tremendous kudos to him in this space, uh, is, is working very hands-on with them to help them reach this stage. And like, you know, really on every every different angle, same as Mansoor and, and, and me as well. And kind of um, that's the same approach we have with all of our companies. Right? And and uh, especially from a market perspective, when you ask me where, where I see a lot of potential moving forward is, is of course, I mean, Southeast Asia, I think is, is big. Um, and you mentioned Philippines, where you have also been active, um, where a lot of our gamer communities from Splinternet is also coming from. Uh, where you see you're probably going to see a lot of growth moving forward. I mean, GDP per capita is increasing. You have a very high mobile phone penetration. You have very low data costs, which you know, pair with a young and hungry generation uh, is going to is going to do the change. And um, also, governments are quite favorable, right? If you especially look at the blockchain and crypto space, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, even Malaysia, even Cambodia, right? They launched Bakong, which is a blockchain-based payment switch. <laughs> um, and that's like, I mean, I was impressed that this was a priority of the government, right? Um, but it obviously shows how forward thinking they already are. Um, and that's driven by, you know, just young people who are getting so much exposure to different markets and kind of leapfrogging as this buzzword says, right? From, you know, mobile first, literally, right? No one is using a credit card. They will pay with the phone. Um, they never had a credit card in the first place. You know, like it's, it's just so different. Um, of what priorities they have and how further they're moving into the space. And of course, from a blockchain perspective, it's a very similar similar thing. With play to earn and gaming, people in, in, in the Philippines are able to make two to three times their, their monthly income by just playing a video game, right? which is game-changing in this market. Um, and especially also it solves core, core problems such as international remittance, sending money from A to B is typically very expensive and you'd have a bank account, right? The bank, the unbanked percentage in Philippines probably around 70%, uh, which makes it even more difficult to open bank accounts for business, grow your business because you cannot really, um, you know, escape your working capital needs if you cannot get a loan. And, and of course, from a personal perspective, if you want to send money from A to B, it's about 50 cents in Indonesia, which is the same price as a bowl of rice. Right, which is kind of intense if you think about it. Uh, if you compare this to Western or Europe or US, I'll be like, you know, sending three, four euros, uh, literally just sending from bank to bank, right? That's that's quite high. And then you probably think about twice if you actually want to do that. Uh, and then that's why you see PayFast and all these companies, Pintu, um, have so much traction in this market because they really solve a problem which prevents people from doing something. Right. And that's why all these emerging technologies are, are, are growing so fast. Um, and that's why I see in these markets, but also parts of Africa and parts of Latin America is, is, is so interesting from an investor perspective. I love it. Uh, and that sounds pretty exciting. Like that you're, uh, you guys are right in the thick of things, making some great investments. And of course, just living and learning how these startups are interacting with everybody. And, you know, China has been pretty advanced in the last few years on their ecosystem and their startups. And it's obviously branching off yeah. into all of the other countries surrounding it. And that seems like uh, um, Southeast Asia is just moving really fast. And that's, uh, that's exciting. Absolutely. Very exciting. Very cool. Okay, well, we're going to jump in real quickly. We got one last question before we go into rapid fire questions. And that one mm -hmm. last question was, in the journey and everything you've done, 
in the startup space, is there one story that really stands out for you around a startup that maybe you thought was going to fail, COVID hit, whatever it might be, but just what it takes to really be a startup um, and what it takes to be an entrepreneur to kind of live through the uh, ebbs and flows, the roller coaster ride. Is there any story that really stood out that she or he um, really impressed you and just blew your mind on what it took to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. And actually one story which I found really, really impressive. There's a company called Click. Uh, it's a it's a payment. It started off as a payment company. Now became a legit fintech company with a bunch of different components of, of how they make money. But they launched in a in a very emerging market, um, and you know went basically through every challenge I, I mentioned before. Um, and I was impressed by the founders' mindset. Right? But not just one founder, like literally all of them. Right? They got they didn't get paid for months, but they believed that they were doing is correct. Right. And like the, even the people, like after three, four months of not being paid um, a cent, right, because they couldn't at this point in time, um, everybody was still pulling together, going to the office and working because everybody believed in what they're actually doing as a tremendous value to the ecosystem. And it was always very, very challenging. Right. You can imagine, um, especially the burden of a founder, of a CEO who, you know, has to sleep with all of this every single day is very, very difficult. But in the end, they pivot the business model and went more from a B2C to a B2B. Um, they got traction, they got funding, and they pulled through it, right? But no one essentially quit. And, and that is exactly from a recruiting perspective so important, right? If you only have people who are not believing 100% in what you're doing, it's going to create tremendous value. They are not going to be there after not getting paid for one or two months, right? And that can happen faster as anybody thinks in a startup. And probably everybody reached that point uh, closely or even had it, you know, when, when you need to raise a bridge round or all these things um, or not take salary as a founder yourself. Um, and that's, that's what I mean. And that's why I saw um, these points as just so important because if you reach such a stage, which unfortunately can happen and happens to most of the startups out there, if you look from a, a pure statistical perspective, right? Um, you need to have the right people who pull through this and still be motivated and still believe in the bigger vision. And that's exactly what they're doing. And I have never seen anything like this before. Right? I mean, of course, yeah, getting a month not paid or getting a pay cut or something like this, but getting a paid for half a year and literally coming back to office like every single one is is you know, kudos to the founders of building a community and keep building the, keeping the, the vision in the company that much and like you know building this friendship essentially so people stick together even if something goes really really wrong. Oh, that's incredible! And you know, you mentioned the pivot too, so it's pretty cool that when you get yourself into a real challenge and a real pickle and you can't pay and you can't do something, but you really believe in the vision that eventually things are going to alter just enough to get you into the right spot. But sometimes you got to hit the bottom before you can start moving up. So that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing story and, and great to hear that they were able to work their way through it as a team and, and keep growing. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, They're crushing it. I love it. Crushing is good. <laughs> uh, all right, we're going to jump into uh, rapid fire questions. We're going to start off with business questions and then we're going to get into the personal side. So okay. pick one or the other. Ready to roll? Yeah, ready to roll. <laughs> all right. Founder or co-founder? Um, founder. Unicorn or four-year 10x exit? Unicorn. Tech or CPG? CPG. Brand or tech? Brand. AI or blockchain? Blockchain. <laughs> I was going to guess that one, but just want to double check. <laughs> check in your convictions. First time founder or second, third time founder? Uh, myself? No, just in general. Like if you're investing, which one? Oh. Rationally, you would say the second time or third time founder, but I love investing in first time founders. Okay. First money in or Series A? First money in. Angel or VC? Um, VC, but early. Okay. Board seat or observer? Um, observer. Safe or convertible note? Safe. Lead or follow? Follow. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Working with the founders. 
Number of companies invested per year? 25. You're on the super high threshold. Amazing. Uh, any preferred terms that you guys like? Um, to be honest, we are very founder-friendly. We don't really have that much terms. Um, coachability is something important for us. And, um, you know, we typically get some equity vested um, for our support. Okay. Or tokens vested, depends. Uh, verticals of focus? I'm a, I'm a big fan of EdTech and FinTech. Okay. And then two things that really stand out for you when a startup approaches you that you like to see um, to get you into that investment mode? If someone immediately starts with what problem they're solving and does not put the tech in the, in the, in the forefront, so not saying, oh, I'm a blockchain company, like, I don't care. I want to see what problem you're using. If you use blockchain, that's great for us because it fits our thesis, but um, blockchain alone won't cut it. Um, and the second thing is, um, unit economics right even though if you're if you if you understand the value of what that means for your business even though the numbers might be not correct but putting thought in this and actually building a story around numbers is, is very powerful for me i love it same that's uh two great points okay we're gonna jump into the personal side book or movie movie Superman or Batman? Uh, Batman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Pizza. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oh, that's a tough one, man. Um, I want to speak to Oprah. I like it. Arsenal or Manchester United? Manchester United. Damn it. <laughs> Only found two Arsenal fans in, in all of this. And the second one actually just chose it because it was the first one I said. It wasn't a soccer fan. Bike or rollerblades? Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Big Mac, 100%. Trophy or money? Uh, trophy. Beer or wine? Beer. Alarm clock or mobile phone? Mobile phone. Hotel or hostel? Hostel. Ah, the second hostel picker. I love it. <laughs> King or rich? Um, I'm not a money person. I, I chose King. Okay. Concert or amusement park? Uh, amusement park. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Mm, fortune cookie. Has life been boring without Trump? Sorry, say that again. Has life been boring without Trump? <laughs> yeah, definitely less headlines. <laughs> it's certainly not as loud as it used to be, that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, favorite sports team? I have to buy Munich. Which one? Uh, the German football, like the Munich one. I have to oh, buy Munich team. Yeah, Myron, uh, Munich. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. That's awesome. I follow them on Twitter and watch their games too. You should. They, uh, they're, pretty, they're pretty solid. <laughs> oh, they're a, they're a great team. Yeah, they always have been. They always seem to pull off great great talent. So yeah, great team. Um, favorite movie and character you would play in the movie? Uh, James Bond, um, Goldeneye, and I want to be James Bond. <laughs> awesome. I like it. Which what movie was it? Which is the which version? James Bond Gold. Oh, Goldfinger. I think you could translate it. Ah, uh, Goldfinger. Okay, English, cool. Right? Yeah. yeah, I like it. All right. Um, I watched, I watched every single James Bond movie. By the way, it's actually I'm I'm looking at a series. I might do that. I like that. I'm going to go back and watch them all. It's been a long time. Good idea. Done. All right. Favorite <laughs> book. Favorite book. <laughs> favorite book. Oh, there's a bunch of them. Um. It's a German book, though. Okay. Uh, if I translate, it's something like um, um, ask for the why, which kind of covers like, um, don't, like even if you do something, you want to always understand where you're coming from. And, and I like it because like, it ties back to literally all I'm doing is like just asking what's, what's beyond that, right? Even if you hear something nice, headlines or something, it's always mostly not as good as it 
people make it look like, right? And getting that that critical eye, I think, is pretty pretty cool. I like it. Okay, first brand that pops in your mind. Apple. Most famous person that pops in your mind. Most famous person pops in my mind. Um, who pops in my mind? Honestly, I forgot. I wanted to say my dad at the very beginning, but that's a bit too cliche. <laughs> Honestly, I, I thought immediately about Jeff Bezos just because I talked to him before and I read an article before about it. Okay. Uh, it's a good answer too. I, I think I might move that question around because I, uh, a couple of people have picked Bezos because I say his name and I'm like, no, that's not the point, but it, it makes sense. It's going to come up. So I'm going to shift that one beforehand so that it makes you really think because <laughs> I am curious as to... Uh, the great thing is that a lot of people do pick Apple as their first brand that comes to mind. So, it, it, and maybe it's just environmental, but they do a fantastic job of getting in your face, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the last question we have, what is your superpower? My superpower is, um, is genuine listening. All right. That's a good, uh, that's a good power to have. Uh, more people could use the power of listening. So brilliant. I love it. Well, Tobias, I want to say thank you very much for all of your time today. I learned lots, took lots of notes. I always have to show this because I want people to believe that I actually do right. <laughs> and, uh, but it was fantastic. I loved it. There was a, a lot of great insights. You shared a lot of great things. Amazing what you guys are doing with, uh, with your new fund, uh, tearing it up in Southeast Asia, which is amazing. And uh, you know, the way we like to end our show is we like to give you the last words. We want you to share anything that you like to the investor community or to startups. But again, I thank you very much for all your time today. Fantastic. Uh, great to, to learn more about you and what you're up to. So thank you for joining us today. Definitely. I mean, I had a, I had a very good time. I love the questions, especially the, the quick questions in the, in the end. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's great, great to be on the, on, on the podcast today. So the, the last couple of words, I think, I think for me it's it's um I think for me it's just uh, what I want to say is essentially do something you're passionate about right and it's both for from from a founder perspective and from an investor perspective and you know join a fund you're interested in what they're doing and not just you want to join a VC and also as a founder do something um doing something with the mindset of of making this to get money is probably not going to work uh, and and really think about why am I in this in this market, right? And what do I do better than any competitors? Or if there's no competitor, is this really a market, right? And that that comes again. If you're really passionate about what you're doing, um, it's on the it's on one side is obviously very good, um, but on the other side, it can also be a bit delusional, right? So getting this secondhand advice and figuring out um, this question that I just mentioned, and the same thing is for a VC. Every VC should give every startup attention, um, even if you might not invest in them. It's still good to give them. Um, feedback or um, I know this um, because I think everybody deserves that. I love it, man. You've got bullet points after bullet points. So fantastic. All great insights. Um, again, Tobias, thank you very much for our time today. It's been fantastic time. So thank you very much. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Jeffrey. Okay. That was uh, a fantastic chat with uh, Tobias in Singapore. Uh, those guys are doing some amazing, amazing investments, working with so many great companies. And, uh, you know, I think he shared some really cool key pieces to helping startups and not just in, uh, you know, in Singapore and Southeast Asia, but just in general. You know, when you're going into a business, you know, he talked about wearing many hats. You're three people. You're going to do a lot of different things. Uh, have a strong vision. So write that vision down. That's your pitch. Whatever that might be, have a vision. And then you know what? You're going to have to battle through some geopolitical issues while you're building a company in different countries. Figure out what those are, but look for coaches, advisors, people that have done it before. They're going to help you maneuver through this a lot quicker. Um, and then I guess just the end part, which was, again, supporting the passion. Be passionate about what you're doing. Have the right mindset. Don't always make it about money. Make it about why you're building this company, why you're solving this problem, why people are going to want to uh, come to you for that solution. You know, one day they'll pay you. Um, my mind, it was always, uh, I work because I love what I do. I'm going to learn, but figure out what drives you. And it can't always be about money. So make sure there's a market and you're solving a problem.
But Tobias, fantastic conversation. Again, thank you very much for all of that insight and sharing. It was fantastic. So thank you very much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja. Thank you and have a fantastic week.